In 2014, the CDC reported that UTI antibiotic treatment was avoidable at least 39% of the time. That's right. More than one-third of antibiotics given for UTIs didn't need to be given at all. They went on to explain that this trend in overprescribing antibiotics for UTI is mostly because asymptomatic bacteria is insanely common in all age groups and is misdiagnosed as a UTI more often than we'd like to think. And it's not only because of asymptomatic bacteria that we tend to overprescribe antibiotics for UTI. Patients often have urine cultures ordered without an appropriate indication, some of which turn out to be false positives. And all too often, the doc misinterprets the urinalysis. Now, don't get me wrong. We still appropriately manage most patients with UTI, and that's important because a small but significant proportion of patients with UTI can progress to sepsis and septic shock, develop something like emphysematous pyelonephritis, life-threatening stuff. So to up our game, we need to know how to prevent these nasty complications of UTI while at the same time be judicious and wise with our use of antibiotics. We need to learn about all the subtleties of clinical diagnosis, differential diagnosis, urine test interpretation, and antibiotic choice. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. As always, I'm very pleased to have my friend and collaborator, an eMERGE doc at Markham Stouffville Hospital, the EBM nerd, otherwise known as First 10 EM, Justin Morgenstern. Welcome, Justin, back to the show. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad I'm here for the most exciting topic in emergency medicine. <laughs> Definitely the sexiest. And new to EM cases, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Andrew Morris. Now, ready for this? He's the medical director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto, a full professor in the Department of Medicine at U of T, an ID specialist with a Master's of Epidemiology from Havid, a research fellow at the Canadian Infectious Disease Society. There's a whole long list of other amazing accomplishments, including being a basketball coach. Dr. Morris, welcome to EM Cases. Really excited to be here. Awesome. So... With the launch of our new conflict of interest policy, I just wanted to mention, as of February 2017, that's explained beautifully by Howard Ovens and Joel Lechin in our Waiting to be Seen blog number 12, we'll have any potential conflicts of interest listed in the show notes for this podcast and all future EM cases educational resources. It just turns out that neither of these gentlemen have any conflicts of interest to declare. So let's jump into the first case. An 83-year-old woman from home presents to your ED with her favorite chief complaint, weak and dizzy. She had a gradual onset of generalized weakness and vague dizziness over the last two days with no falls, no altered level of awareness. She's on hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension and otherwise pretty healthy. Review of systems is normal. She has no fever, no chills, no chest pain, no belly pain, back pain, or headache. She has no recent change in her meds, no Molina. All the usual stuff you ask for with a weak and dizzy patient are negative. On exam, her vitals are normal. GCS is 15. She's oriented and alert. There's no focal neurologic findings. And the rest of her exam is pretty unremarkable. ECG is also unremarkable. And CBC and lights come back normal. 
The nurse tells you that the urine is cloudy and smells bad and asks you if you'd like to start IV antibiotics. So, Dr. Morris, this might sound like a simple question to start off with, but from what I've learned recently about UTIs, it actually isn't. How do you make the diagnosis of UTI in an adult? So I think you make the diagnosis of a urinary tract infection based on how we always make diagnoses, on a good history and at least a limited physical examination where appropriate, often guided by your history. So in patients with suspected urinary tract infections, if it's a lower urinary tract infection, the physical exam should be essentially normal. There may be some suprapubic tenderness, but in general, it's normal. In patients with pyelonephritis or upper urinary tract infection, you would expect to see systemic signs of infection, such as fever, and you may also expect to see localized findings such as flank pain or tenderness. Okay, I noticed that you didn't say anything about any tests in making the diagnosis. I didn't make any mention of tests because we tend to jump to tests too early. And the most important thing is to establish your clinical suspicion early on. We end up over-ordering urinary tests such as urinalyses or urine cultures and even blood cultures in patients who have a very low likelihood of having a urinary tract infection. So I guide my decision on ordering urinary tests in particular based on my initial history and physical exam. I think that is so important and can't be said enough. The diagnosis of UTI is clinical, but urines are done before I see patients over and over and over again. Nurses come up to me with a slip of paper saying this patient has a urinary tract infection, but nobody has even talked to them or examined the patient yet. It's not based on the urine dip. It's a clinical diagnosis. All right. So first take home point is UTI is a clinical diagnosis to be confirmed by your tests. All right. Now, you had alluded to a simple UTI versus a complicated UTI. Just before we get into more details about UTI, I think it's important just to clarify some definitions. What's a simple UTI and what's a complicated UTI? To be honest, I actually don't know what a simple and a complicated UTI is. I think the terminology is confusing and is often misleading. I think what's really important is to decide whether or not the patient has a lower urinary tract infection, which is predominantly a benign illness, not always, but it's predominantly benign illness, or a pyelonephritis or upper urinary tract infection, which is often a serious illness. The other thing I would add to that is that we all learn in our medical schooling that pyelonephritis is a disease of young women who present to the emergency department with flank pain, fever, and vomiting. Unfortunately, that heuristic fails us often because just like the patient who has classical pneumonia, who we expect to have fever, rust-colored sputum, and bronchial breath sounds, we see that as frequently as we do in the emergency department, the patient with the flank pain, the nausea and vomiting. Even though we do see that, more often what we see are older patients who may have more subtle features of pyelonephritis. So when it comes to simple versus complicated UTI, which it sounds like we should maybe even just throw out the door, the question comes up of whether a male with a UTI is considered simple or complicated. How can you sort that out? So I, th I think that's a great question about distinguishing between males and females. I think what's most important is that males who have urinary tract infection almost always have some kind of anatomical problem with flow. 
whether it's an enlarged prostate, whether it's an inflamed prostate, whether there's a stone, the problem is that there's an underlying anatomical disorder which we can identify, which is different than in women. Because of the anatomy of the female urinary tract, they're predisposed to infection just by being female. And so our burden of proof that we need to investigate further is different with men than with women. Now, it's pretty much weekly that a well-intentioned, smart and keen eMERGE nurse will tell me that their patient's urine is cloudy and smells bad. So they probably have a UTI and ask me if I want to start antibiotics, like in this case. So Dr. Morgenstern, how useful is urine cloudiness and odor in diagnosing UTI? Like everything in medicine, it, it always depends. The very simple answer is you can't diagnose a UTI based on the smell and the look of, of the urine. I was a little bit surprised when I looked into the evidence on this, though. Clearly, the sensitivity is not going to be there. You're not going to catch UTIs by looking for them all to be cloudy and smelly. But actually, out of all the things we looked at, the specificity of this test wasn't bad. I found studies that said it was as high as 96%, which means if you found it, there is a reasonable chance that is going to be a urinary tract infection. That being said, it doesn't 100% rule it in. The post-test probabilities were somewhere at about 80 or 90%. I wouldn't rely on it, but it actually surprisingly might give you a hint that a urinary tract infection is there. I would add one caveat. I would not use it at all if the patient had an indwelling catheter. That's a completely different patient. But in a patient without a catheter, a cloudy, smelly urine might give you a hint that it is a urinary tract infection. Yeah, that's a good point about the indwelling catheter. So I guess the bottom line there is that in a patient without an indwelling catheter, if the nurse tell you that it's really cloudy and smelly, they're probably right, but not all the time. Yeah, it's still a clinical diagnosis. Exactly. All right. Well, you know, I, I remember when I started practicing way back when for immunocompetent patients who presented with a classic story for cystitis, we almost never did any tests at all. We just wrote a script for antibiotics and that was it. So Dr. Morris, in 2017, which patients with a suspected UTI require urine tests? So I think a patient who's unwell enough to require admission to hospital absolutely requires more specific testing. Patients who you strongly suspect have a lower urinary tract infection or a cystitis, by and large, do not require testing unless you have some reason to believe that they're going to have a drug-resistant organism or choosing antimicrobials might be a challenge. For example, rather extensive and well-documented history of drug allergy where choosing the agent is really important for them because they don't have too many choices. That might be a rare occasion that you might do it. But I would say for the majority of patients with cystitis, you almost certainly don't need to routinely order urinary tests. I just love the fact that an infectious disease specialist is telling us that we don't need to do cultures on patients with simple cystitis because the classic thing is that every time an infectious disease specialist is involved in anything, all they want is culture. So good for you, man. Don't tell any of my colleagues. I'll probably get kicked out of the club. But right. <laughs> but we should be clear. He's not standing alone here. Every guideline I reviewed on this said very clearly that cultures are not required in simple urinary tract infections. Uh, and that's IDSA. It's every guideline says we should not be doing cultures. And yet we do all the time. And the other thing I would add to that is it's a bit of a moving target. So in certain populations, as drug resistance becomes more of a problem, we may need to revisit that philosophy. But I would say in 2017, by and large, in almost every jurisdiction in North America, you don't need to routinely order cultures. 
Alrighty. So for this patient, you didn't jump on giving IV antibiotics right away just because of the, the look and smell of the urine. You ordered a urinalysis and it comes back showing one plus bacteria and 10 to 20 white blood cells per high powered field. They're negative nitrites, negative red cells. So let's get into interpretation of urine tests for infection. I guess first, with this case, Dr. Morgenstern, would you start treating this patient or not based on that urine test? So my decision to treat this patient has nothing to do with the urine test. I think that's changed a lot for me because since reading all this literature, our training has always been look at the urine test first. Again, we said it a number of times, the diagnosis of UTI is clinical. So I need to go back and talk to this patient and decide whether her history and physical are consistent with urinary tract infection. And why do I say that? I've looked through a large number of studies in preparation for this, and none of the things that you will see on a urine dip or a actual microscopy have anywhere close to 100% sensitivity or specificity. I'm not even sure that they can mathematically help change your diagnosis. The sensitivities and specificities that we see are in the 60 or 70% range. With those numbers, a urine dip can't significantly change your pretest probability of disease. So you need to make a clinical decision based on the history and physical. It's not based on the, the urine dip. Okay. Let's say this patient was altered, so you couldn't really get a good history. You know, the, I th- find those ones are, are really challenging because, you know, they've got this urinalysis that looks kind of borderline. You don't have an, a good explanation for their altered level of awareness. We know that urinary tract infections causing altered level of awareness in older folks is not uncommon. How do you suggest we handle that kind of situation, Dr. Morris? It's certainly complicated. And unfortunately, the literature doesn't guide us as much as we'd like it to. There aren't the adequate studies to really explain to us something which we should know, which is in the patient who presents to the emergency room with a previous normal level of consciousness who now has an altered level of consciousness and has urine that's abnormal, how should we manage them? And we just don't have those studies. What we're really interested in knowing is, does the patient have a urinary tract infection that is causative? And the first thing that I will point out is cystitis or a lower urinary tract infection does not cause systemic illness. So patients with cystitis don't have altered level of consciousness. They should never have an altered level of consciousness. So the real question we're trying to ask is, does this patient have a systemic infection? Most patients with systemic infection, not all, but certainly most, we should be able to identify based on certain features on history and physical examination. Those patients, by and large, are septic. I hate the term urosepsis. It should be banned from the literature. But in patients who are septic secondary to pyelonephritis, you expect them to have some degree of temperature dysregulation. They may be hypothermic or certainly have fever. You may or may not be able to see some degree of leukocytosis, and they should have some other changes in their vital signs, like lower than normal blood pressure. And I think those things, along with an antecedent history that suggests that they were getting unwell related to some kind of infectious process or fever-inducing process, are useful clues to understand. If a patient's hemodynamically stable, then you at least have wiggle room to try and resuscitate them with fluids and defer your decision to give them antibiotics. 
The real challenge I think most clinicians have once we start antibiotics is they often get better with fluids and antibiotics. And you're really stuck after that occurs to know which one or both of those have provided the benefit. And so you're really sentencing these patients to a relatively long course of antimicrobial therapy in addition to the other supportive care you're providing. I think as emergency physicians, we are very good at identifying febrile infectious illnesses, sepsis. And if I have a delirium patient who appears febrile, we're going to treat for an infection. Where we get ourselves into trouble is having a delirious elderly patient who has no other signs of infection and just blaming it on UTI because of a urine dip. And I think the real problem I have there isn't that maybe that this patient's going to be exposed to a week's worth of antibiotics, you know, who cares, is that we might be missing the more important diagnosis here because of a false positive urine dip. So there's pretty good recommendations throughout the literature. If you have a delirious patient and they aren't febrile, septic, sick, hold off on those antibiotics, watch them for 24 or 48 hours and see which way they go before making the decision. And I would agree with that for sure. I just put the caveat that unfortunately we just don't have the studies to support what Justin and I both think is the right thing to do. So Dr. Morgenstern, you had mentioned that we could be missing something else. That kind of brings up the differential diagnosis. You know, pyuria isn't always a UTI, right? You know, it can signify just that the patient's very dehydrated, that they have acute renal failure. It could be a sexually transmitted infection. It could be a non-infectious cystitis. It could be just that they have a bladder catheter and that can cause pyuria on its own. So pyuria can certainly be found in a whole slew of diagnoses, not just UTI. I think the way we phrase this is often a little bit backwards, and it's because of actual practice where we have the urine before we see the patient. Our differential diagnosis should not be for, here's pyuria, let's make a differential diagnosis for pyuria. You should have a clinical differential diagnosis, and then you use your test to then adjust that clinical differential diagnosis. So there are a lot of things that will cause pyuria, both infectious and non-infectious, but it makes a big difference. Is that patient having right lower quadrant pain? Are they presenting with a fever? Are they presenting with just dysuria? So you should have a differential diagnosis based on the symptoms, not on the lab test. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, appendicitis can cause pyuria. Diverticulitis can cause pyuria. So again, you have to go back to just doing a good history and physical. Let's talk a little bit more about interpreting urine tests. First, just getting the urine do we need to order a midstream urine in an adult who presents with signs and symptoms of a lower or upper uh, urinary tract infection, or do we just instruct the patient to pee into a cup? So this one may cause some conflict with an infectious disease doctor in the room. I always went with what I was taught, which was midstream, well-cleaned urine catch. And then when I was preparing for this, I came across three or four different studies that had compared midstream clean catch urine to just sending the patient into the room to catch any urine they, they wanted without any cleaning utensils. And the accuracy of both of those tests were exactly the same. Now, what does that actually mean? It may just mean that patients aren't very good at cleaning and performing the midstream clean catch, but based on the evidence that I could find, there's probably not a huge benefit of this midstream clean catch that we emphasize so much. Yeah, I would generally actually agree with that. I think the tradition of getting a midstream clean catch urine 
is probably based on an over-reliance of the importance of the microbiology in urine cultures. And there's a difference between, and I think it's really important, we separate urinalyses from urine culture. So getting a clean catch midstream urine versus an initial urine probably makes no difference in terms of the presence of pyuria, nitrites, etc. But what it will likely make a slight difference in is which bacteria are identified and whether you get some degree of contamination from sort of superficial flora that might be around the distal urethra. From a practical point of view, I don't think there's much difference, to be honest with you. And especially if, as both Justin and I are trying to say here, we need to de-emphasize the reliance on urine testing for making the diagnosis. I think there's going to be a relatively small minority of cases where the difference between a clean catch midstream and initial urine is going to make a difference. Yeah, I suppose it might make a difference in the sickest patients and those sick patients a lot of them are going to be getting a catheterized urine and they are going to be cleaning anyhow. So then it becomes sort of irrelevant. All right. So the next question is, what kind of urine screening tests should we be doing? So there's urine dipsticks, there's urine R&M, there's microscopy. I know at North York General, where I work, there are no dipsticks in the department. They've just gotten rid of them because the accuracy is not great. Dr. Morgenstern, what kind of tests should we be doing if we do decide that we need some sort of test for our urine. Yeah, so we can make this simple or complicated because the literature here is a mess. But the simple answer is, again, you probably almost never need these tests or the tests are not accurate enough for you to, to make your diagnosis based on the test. There is a difference between microscopy and a urine dipstick. The microscopy does add a small degree of accuracy over a dipstick, but we're still talking about, and unfortunately, each one of those tests is comprised of a large number of tests. But if you're looking for white blood cell counts or you're looking for nitrates, the sensitivity and specificity are still both in the 70 to 80%. And you might add 5% by doing a proper microscopy but that still doesn't get you to a spot where you can rely on this test to make the diagnosis of urinary tract infection. We can combine these tests in a large number of different ways, which makes this a lot more complicated. So normally we're looking at pyuria and we're looking at nitrites to try to make the diagnosis. People use these in two different ways. You can either look for pyuria or nitrites. And if you do that, you'll be very, very sensitive. You will catch almost all infections, sensitivity in the high 90s, but the specificity will kill you. The specificity is down in the low 20s to 30s, and you will have a large number of false positives if you rely on either or. Or you can look for the combination of nitrites and pyuria. If you do that, you will be very specific in the high 90s, but now the sensitivity will kill you. You won't pick up the infection. So what I'm saying is no matter how you combine these tests, there is no perfect combination. It's all going to come back once again to having to make a clinical diagnosis. These tests just aren't good enough. All right, let's dissect the urinalysis then and go through all the elements. So first is white cells. So is there some sort of specific cutoff for the number of white cells per high-powered field? Like this patient had 10 to 20 white cells per high-powered field. Of course, again, it's a clinical diagnosis, but how should we be interpreting the white blood cells? I think that we should keep in mind what Justin was just mentioning before about the importance of the pretest probability or your clinical suspicion. Because of the 
problems with both sensitivity and specificity of any of the elements, including white blood cells, I think you really need to consider what's the likelihood of the diagnosis before you even look at the urinalysis. By and large, unless a patient's neutropenic, it's unlikely that they have a significant urinary tract infection, meaning an inflammatory and infectious condition of the urinary tract in the absence of white blood cells there. We generally use a cutoff of five white blood cells per high-power field. This is based on some degree of epidemiology studies that show that most healthy people walking the streets do not have significant white blood cells in their urinary tract. But there are many caveats to that, and that includes those who have reduced urinary clearance because of, for example, benign prostatic hypertrophy and dwelling urinary catheter. We know that women, as they age, have a higher incidence of even pyuria that's asymptomatic, let alone bacteriuria. And so you really have to bear in mind your urinalysis results with what your clinical suspicion is. So let me just clarify that a bit. If there's zero white cells on your urinalysis, it makes it pretty unlikely that there's a urinary tract infection. Traditionally, there's been this cutoff of five. However, again, it has to be in the clinical picture because there's so many false positives. So many people will have asymptomatic pyuria who don't have a true urinary tract infection that, again, you just have to take it into context of the clinical situation. Yeah, if I don't think the patient has a urinary tract infection, I don't even want to know the results of the urinalysis. If somebody, I have at least an intermediate suspicion of a urinary tract infection, and they're not neutropenic, and I see a relatively low number of white blood cells, I don't believe they have a urinary tract infection. We don't want to come across as clinical nihilists here. These tests aren't without any value at all, it's just hard to find the right patient to use them in. They all have likelihood ratios somewhere in the neighborhood of about two for a positive likelihood ratio and a 0.5 for a negative likelihood ratio. And what does that actually mean? So it means if you start with a patient who has a 50-50 chance of having a UTI or not, you might get them as high as a 70% post-test probability or as low as a 30% post-test probability. And that might help you change your uh, management. Where we get ourselves into trouble is if we try to use these tests with poor likelihood ratios in patients who already have a very high or a very low likelihood of disease. All right. So we've talked about pyuria. What about nitrites? I mean, does uh, positive nitrites necessarily mean the patient has a UTI, Dr. Morris? The simple answer is no. Nitrites reflect certain bacteria in the urine, and that's all they reflect is certain bacteria in the urine generally E. coli, but there's a bunch of bacteria that don't produce nitrates. So nitrates are not sufficiently sensitive to rule out an infection. And similarly, because all they reflect is the presence of bacteria in the urine, they don't have a clinical correlation. Okay. And if they do have positive nitrates, does that help to guide which antibiotic you might choose? I wouldn't base treatment decisions based on the presence of nitrates. There's too much variability Um, microbiologically in terms of which organisms produce nitrites. And similarly, nitrites don't reflect any kind of susceptibility patterns in the community. So I wouldn't base any treatment decisions on them. Okay. So lots of false positives, lots of false negatives, but in combination with a high white cells and a good clinical picture, it makes it pretty convincing that the patient has a UTI. Okay. So we've talked about pyuria. We've talked about nitrites. Let's go on to bacteria. 
this patient has one plus bacteria from a catheterized specimen. Does that mean she necessarily has a UTI? How do you generally interpret bacteria on a urine microscopy? So maybe I'll start by saying what we're actually talking about there. So when somebody comes back and we see bacteria on the urine on day number one, we're not talking about the end culture. We're talking about either a gram stain or a microscopy test for bacteria. That is very accurate, but it's very accurate for a positive culture. It's not very accurate for a UTI, and those are two very different things. So a gram stain will predict a positive culture, but we have to remember a positive culture is not a urinary tract infection, and that fails us on two sides. We know that there's a significant percentage of the population where we will just find bacteria in the urine the so-called asymptomatic bacteriuria. And we've already said most of these patients don't need to be treated. We also know that there are a significant number of urinary tract infections where we will never get a positive culture. So you just cannot rely on the bacteria in either direction for confirming that this is a urinary tract infection. So that's for the patient who doesn't have an indwelling catheter. Dr. Morris, what about the patient who does have an indwelling catheter in terms of finding bacteria on urine microscopy? Absolutely useless. The presence of an indwelling catheter makes it increasingly likely that there's going to be A, chronic inflammation. And I know you're not asking me about pyuria, but it makes you more likely to have pyuria by having a chronic indwelling catheter. But equally and perhaps more importantly, you're going to have chronic colonization of the urinary tract because of the presence of that catheter. And that those bacteria may be present anywhere along the catheter, right from the bladder onwards to the drainage bag. And because of that, the presence of bacteriuria is of no predictive value. I think we got the most important message there. Andrew Andrew's laid it out perfectly. I think most emergency physicians now know not to trust a culture from a cath. But I still hear a lot that there are white cells here. So this is now must be an inflammatory condition. But if you look at the studies, if you have a catheter in, there is a 97% chance you will always have pyuria. So you cannot use pyuria any more than you can use a culture from somebody who has a catheter in place. Got it. Now, before we leave bacteria, apparently there's some recent evidence to suggest that in young women with recurrent UTIs, and we see a lot of these patients in the ED, that bacteria may in fact be protective for future UTIs with more pathogenic organisms. So again, bacteria in the urine doesn't necessarily imply a UTI. So next in our discussion of urine test interpretation is squamous epithelial cells and leukocyte esterase. So Dr. Morgenstern, how can squamous epithelial cells and leukocyte esterase help or hinder us in interpreting the urine microscopy. When you're talking about epithelial cells, what we're really talking about, the presence of epithelial cells is not going to change whether there is pyuria or nitrites. What you're really talking about is the end game of a culture. So the best evidence for the most accurate culture is getting less than five epithelial cells per high power field, and you will get the most accurate culture. But again, rewinding all the way, we know that we're not making our diagnosis based on a positive culture. We're making it clinically, so it may not be as relevant for us. Lots of epithelial cells mean a dirty specimen that you basically just need to ignore. 
I would not trust my culture on that. I would still, if I really wanted to know what the pyuria or the nitrites were, I don't think the epithelial cells are throwing you off in that interpretation. Okay, so that's epithelial cells. What about leukocyte esterase? How do, how do we interpret that part of the urinalysis? So I think this is this comes back to the same discussion that we were having before. This It is marginally less accurate than looking at white cells under a high power field, but on all accounts, it's a relatively good estimation of where you're going to end up if you actually do a microscopy. But once again, even the, the white cells under high power field has that sensitivity uh, specificity in the mid, mid 80s. So if you're really in an equivocal diagnosis, leukocyte esterase might tip you over the edge one way or another. Uh, but for the most part, it doesn't have a huge predictive value for making a diagnosis. All right. And Dr. Morris, for a while where I work, there are automatically sending off urine cultures for all, quote, positive urine RNMs until someone pointed out how much money the hospital was spending on needless cultures. Which patients with suspected UTI require urine cultures? Well, I think as we sort of discussed earlier, the patients who you are pretty certain require admission or have a upper urinary tract infection or a pyelonephritis, I think those patients almost certainly require urine cultures. And the patients who you anticipate have a more complex decision-making process around antimicrobials. So that list that we made earlier around immunocompromised patients, previously treated failure to respond, neutropenia, all those kind of things, those patients would require. The same people who need urinalyses, cultures, it's it's the same sort of list. Correct. All right. Well, Dr. Morganson, you had you had alluded to this before, but how accurate are urine cultures anyways? So there's two problems we'll run into with urine cultures. Number one, there's just the collection issues. So you can get bacteria that weren't actually in the bladder into the uh, urine sample. But I think our biggest problem when interpreting cultures of the urine is that a positive culture is not a UTI. So you'll have a problem with specificity in that we know that there's probably around a 5%. It'll be higher in children. It'll be higher in elderly patients, but probably around a 5% rate of asymptomatic bacteria at all times. Those are all going to be false positives if you look at the urine. And then there's a long series of literature documenting culture negative UTIs as well. UTIs where you just can't grow any bacteria for whatever reason. They've already been on an antibiotic or it's just a bacteria that's not not growing or the sample was too dilute. In some series that I saw, as many as 25% of things that were called UTI clinically did not grow a culture. Uh, so in both directions, a urine culture is not accurate for UTI. Wow. So overall, a 5% false positive rate and a 25% false negative rate. All right. So Dr. Morris, occasionally we'll get a urine culture back that shows yeast or candida in the urine. Do you need to start antifungals on these patients? What, What do we do with these cultures? I think candiduria is certainly for myself as somebody interested in antimicrobial stewardship is the bane of my existence. Because often patients have flora in their urinary tract, included in that flora may be yeast. And when we see a predominance of yeast growing in the urine, what that really means is this patient has had something to alter their flora to get rid of often beneficial bacteria and has shifted it to yeast being present in the urinary tract. It is really uncommon for patients to have a urinary tract infection secondary to candida. And in fact, we know especially that in patients in the intensive care unit, but as well in other patient populations, if you treat 
candiduria with antifungals. And if you watch them over time after completing therapy, there's no difference in any significant outcome between those who received therapy with antifungals and those who didn't receive therapy with antifungals. So because of that, we're very reluctant to treat candiduria. There are the rare and very rare patients who require further investigation and treatment, but that's an extreme minority. I guess some of those patients will end up with liver failure, so you are affecting outcomes. <laughs> All right. Dr. Morgenstern, which patients with bacteria in their urine do require antibiotics? So this is really interesting. And part of the reason I love being part of this whole full movement is you're constantly learning new things. And before we started recording, I've learned something new already this morning. But let me start with what I traditionally learned. And Andrew here might disagree with me and give us some new information. So my traditional learning with asymptomatic bacteriuria was there was only two groups that we might treat. The first group would be patients who are going to have some kind of urologic procedure in the operating room where you're going to cause bleeding of the mucosa of the urinary tract. And the second group is the one that most of us know is pregnant patients. And as far as I understood in the past, there were some RCTs, I think a small, that seemed to indicate that if you treated bacteria in pregnancy, you decreased things that we didn't like to have happen, like pyelonephritis and early term labor. But my new understanding, I think Andrew might correct me here, is that that is now controversial. Yeah, I think as time has gone on for almost every aspect of how we treat bacteria and bacterial infections, when to treat asymptomatic patients, especially the pregnant patient with asymptomatic bacteria, is evolving. And whereas we thought that they had a very high likelihood, for example, premature labor, pyelonephritis, our understanding now is that those numbers are dramatically diminished and that the benefits of treating may not outweigh the potential detriments of treating. And I don't think the standard of care has changed, but I'd say that it's now at least put into question. And so the heuristic that we've had for decades that every pregnant woman with a positive urine dip and culture requires therapy is certainly open for discussion again. So suffice to say that the current standard still, according to the guidelines, is to treat asymptomatic bacteria in pregnant patients, although people are putting that into question now and we should keep our ears open for any changes in that recommendation. Absolutely. And there's one pearl we might want to add there. Obviously, if you have a positive culture back, you should know what antibiotic to treat because you should have a sensitivity there. But if you look at the guidelines, the treatment course is often a lot shorter than you're seeing with urinary tract infections. So I know for nitrofurantaroin, they're only recommending three days of treatment. So you might want to look it up when you decide to treat these patients. All right. Now, we had talked a little bit about how patients with indwelling catheters will have pyuria and will have bacteria, and that's very difficult to interpret. What if this elderly, weak and dizzy patient, in our case, was chronically catheterized? How, how would that change your workup and management? So for me, this answer is really, really easy and also really, really difficult. It's easy because it's the exact same answer as if they're not catheterized, you need to come up with a clinical diagnosis. And that's the, there's no test, there's no urine test, there's no culture that's going to help you. It is a clinical diagnosis. But that also makes it really difficult because I don't have any hints or tricks to help you along. You're going to have to use your medical degree and use your judgment and make a diagnosis. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. All right. So really, it's no different than a non-catheterized patient. You're still going to work them up the exact same way. And again, it comes down to UTI is 
a clinical diagnosis. And I think what I would add is it's increasingly difficult to know if that catheterized patient is at a higher risk of a urinary tract infection because of the catheter or a reduced risk of urinary tract infection. We really don't know that. And it makes it even more challenging. And you really have to go by what Justin was saying earlier. Use your clinical sense based on the whole picture on whether you think the patient has a systemic infection or not. Mm -hmm. Actually, that brings up the question. You know, you see a lot of patients come in on antibiotics who have had some urologic procedure and have an indwelling catheter. And sometimes these patients are on, you know, Cipro for weeks or months with their indwelling catheter. What's the evidence for that kind of practice? There is none, or if there is, it's rather weak. The rule of thumb that I try and tell everyone, all my learners and colleagues, is if you can't tell the difference between a treatment course and a, quotes, prophylaxis course, then it's probably useless. If your treatment course and your prophylaxis course look indistinguishable, then your prophylaxis is largely useless and you're almost certainly treating yourself rather than the patient. Hmm. So for those patients who come in, say, a couple weeks post-TERP, they've got an indwelling catheter in and they're on Cipro, they could easily not be on Cipro. Uh, if for whatever reason you think they might be having side effects from the Cipro, you're safe to take them off the Cipro unless they're sick. I would rephrase that. I would say it would be beneficial for the patient to take them off the Cipro because it's almost certainly causing them more harm than good. The only person that really benefits from the patient who's on long-term prophylaxis and indwelling catheters is the infectious disease physician because we get consulted on these patients because they often have drug-resistant organisms. Nobody else benefits. (laughs) And of course, for our emergency colleagues, we do have to throw in the caveat that we're only involved in these patients' care for one day, one hour, whereas there are other specialists taking care of these patients for long term. Uh, so I think it's really important to involve the entire team in that decision, even if you think you know best, which sometimes we do. <laughs> Absolutely. Now for the mid-podcast review. Just in case it didn't sink in the first few times, the diagnosis of UTI in adults is a clinical one, not a laboratory one. How do you tell the difference between cystitis and pyelonephritis, or a lower UTI or an upper UTI? Well, typically, a lower UTI does not cause systemic illness and the physical is normal, while typically an upper UTI presents with fever, flank pain, tenderness, nausea, and vomiting. But do remember that older patients tend to present a lot more subtly. Now, when you're told that the urine is cloudy and smelly in a patient without an indwelling catheter, that's got about a 96% specificity for a UTI. That's pretty good. Remember that if they have an indwelling catheter, forget about it. Urine tests are not required for the vast majority of patients with suspected lower UTIs. So who does require urine tests? Well, immunocompromised patients, those who've been on multiple courses of antibiotics or have shown resistance to antibiotics in the past, and those with a lot of drug allergies. Now, if you do do urine tests, which ones should you do? Well, a urine microscopy is slightly more accurate than a urine dip. So let's go through the elements of the urine microscopy. 
While elevated white blood cells by itself has a pretty good sensitivity, there's no single element on the urinalysis that has adequate specificity, not even nitrates, to rule out a UTI. However, the combination of white blood cells and nitrites is very specific in the high 90s. So that's one thing on the urine microscopy that you can almost hang your hat on. Remember, again, that pyuria does not equal UTI. White blood cells in the urine can occur from just having a catheter, just from being old, from an STI, from dehydration, from renal failure, from appendicitis, from diverticulitis, from a whole long list of things. Well, leukocyte esterase is about as good as white blood cells, and less than five epithelial cells makes the culture a bit more reliable. So again, by themselves, not very helpful, but in combination, may tip you one way or the other. And just like pyuria, bacteria on gram stain or microscopy or on culture does not equal UTI either. Asymptomatic bacteria is quite common, and only post-urinary tract instrumentation patients and pregnant patients require antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteria. But we should keep our eyes open for a change in the recommendation for pregnant patients receiving antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteriuria because the pendulum seems to be swinging in the direction of not treating asymptomatic bacteria in pregnant patients. So putting this all together, for those patients in whom you have a low suspicion for a lower UTI clinically, you don't need a urinalysis. For those who you're pretty sure have a lower UTI clinically, a urinalysis isn't useful either because there can be false negatives. It's the intermediate probability patients that a urinalysis might tip you one way or another to rule in or rule out a UTI. Now, in the older adult who presents altered, but who has no other signs and symptoms suggestive of, a, of an upper UTI or systemic illness, our experts recommend holding the antibiotics while giving fluids to the volume-depleted patient to see if that improves their level of awareness and searching for an alternate cause instead of making the diagnosis of a UTI on a false positive urinalysis and missing something big and scary. Well, that's it for the mid-podcast review. If you haven't registered for North York General's Emergency Medicine Update Conference in May in Toronto yet, now's your chance. Killer hands-on workshops, inspiring plenary sessions, and a great chance to network with your colleagues. It's the best large-scale EM conference in Canada, hands down. Now on to case number two. A 26-year-old otherwise healthy woman presents saying, I think I have another UTI. She's had frequency and dysuria for two days with no fever, no back or belly pain, and no vaginal discharge. On exam, she appears well, vitals are normal, abdomen is soft and non-tender, there's no CVA tenderness. This is a, a very rare kind of presentation that we see to the emergency department. <laughs> okay, we, we see these all the time. So Dr. Morgenstern, does this patient need a workup or can you just assume that they have a UTI and treat them? 
is one of the easiest things in, in medicine. If a patient tells you she has a UTI, she has a UTI, knowing that nothing's perfect. I love the literature here. So a self-diagnosis of UTI in somebody who's had a UTI before is more accurate than any of the tests that we've been talking about before. So they come up with a 90% accuracy or the highest likelihood ratio of anything we've been talking about, including the urine dip, the urine culture. And we know this. People have been doing this from a family medicine standpoint for years. You, When I was training as a family physician, you'd call me in the office and say, I have a UTI again. We wouldn't make you come into the office. We would just make sure you don't have a fever, back pain, vomiting. And we'd call in a script for you. So if you know you have a, di- a diagnosis of UTI, it's very safe and reasonable just to start empiric treatment. All righty. So that brings up, you know, when you could go astray. I mean, this is a very straightforward case, but they're not always so straightforward. What kind of things in the history and physical do you do to make sure that this is just, you know, a straightforward UTI yeah, or something else? So as we said, there's no aspect of the history and physical, and there's no test that's 100% accurate for UTI. Uh, And so we can't ever be sure. So there's really three big parts of the history that I'm looking for. You get the basic symptoms based on the chief complaint. So people come in saying they have dysuria and, and frequency. So I don't need to ask about that. So the first thing that I'm asking about really is, is there something else going on? So in the average patient, we see a young, healthy female. Most of the differential diagnosis is going to be gynecological, uh, vaginitis, sexually transmitted infections. So probably the most important question to ask about is vaginal irritation or discharge. And that's played out really well in the literature. If a patient does not have any vaginal irritation or discharge, that has the highest likelihood ratio for a UTI. So if you combine no vaginal irritation of discharge with dysuria, that has a positive likelihood ratio of 24 for UTI, which essentially rules in the diagnosis. So question number one is, do you have vaginal symptoms and do you think you might have a sexually transmitted infection? The second part of my history is really focused on, is this upper or lower disease? So we're going to ask questions to make sure that this isn't pyelonephritis. Do you have back pain? Do you have fever? Do you have nausea and vomiting? And then finally, I think it is important to think about, even though we've been told today that the complicated, uncomplicated uh, structure doesn't help us a lot in UTI, I always ask a few questions to make sure I'm not missing some patient factor that would change my management. So does this patient have immunocompromise or some kind of neurologic uh, or structural problem of, of their urinary tract? So those are the three major components of my UTI history. So when it comes to STIs, I've seen practices all over the map. I've seen general screening for everyone who comes into the emergency department with any kind of UTI symptoms, just general screening for every sexually active person to get STI screening. And then I've seen people just selectively do pelvic exams and cervical swabs, et cetera, to work up the possibility of an STI. What do you recommend in terms of patients coming in with UTI symptoms? Which of those patients need a workup for an STI? So, First, let's make sure we're talking about classic cystitis symptoms and not other symptoms. So if the patient has abdominal pain or fever, that person needs a pelvic exam. You're looking for pelvic inflammatory disease, tubal ovarian abscess. That's a different patient. If we're talking about the patient with dysuria and frequency, the very common UTI patient that we see, I think there's two very reasonable strategies for STI testing. Number one is just test everybody just screening testing on everybody who is sexually active in the emergency department. That's not my practice, but I think it's reasonable because the guidelines for family practice are when patients are coming in for their PAPs, they're getting screened. There is reasonable evidence to support screening because so many of these sexually transmitted infections can be asymptomatic. So 
you would be reasonably supported if you just wanted to test everybody. My practice is not to test everybody, but to ask specifically about their risk for sexually transmitted infection. And I don't think this has to be very complicated. I just ask my patients, do you think this could be a sexually transmitted infection? Do you have any new partners? Do you have discharge? Do you have anything else to make you think that this is a sexually transmitted infection? I then offer STI testing to everybody, but I don't make every patient do it. So if they think that they have a chance, we screen them. If they do not think it's a sexually transmitted infection, I tell everybody with dysuria and frequency that it's still a possibility, even if they're sure it's not, but they don't need to get testing on day number one in the emergency department. But if their symptoms are still there 48 hours later as part of their reassessment, that would be a really good time to get that STI testing done. And there's one pearl that we can add to all of this. When you're doing screening and you're not specifically looking for gynecologic masses, there's actually been some really interesting studies that show that a patient-done self-swab of the cervix is more accurate than a physician-done swab for finding gonorrhea and chlamydia. So as an interesting practice pearl, if you don't think that you need to do an invasive pelvic exam, patient self-swabs are actually very accurate for screening for sexually transmitted infections. That's different these days and days. I know a lot of people have urines, But if you're using swabs, you can actually get the patient to do themselves. Great, Pearl. Love that one. Mm -hmm. All right. Which patients that you think clinically have pyelonephritis, which of those patients need imaging? And if you do decide to do imaging, do they need an ultrasound or a CT scan? Dr. Morgenstern, any, any thoughts on indications for imaging in patients suspected of pylo? So the answer might surprise some of the listeners. I bet you... The older you are, the less likely you're surprised by this answer, but pyelonephritis does not routinely need imaging. That's the easy answer. So the real question is, what are you looking for on imaging? And there's two groups of things you might be looking for. There's the things around the kidney itself, and that would be a perinephric abscess. That would be pyonephrosis or a septic stone, or you might find emphysematous pyelonephritis as a, in a really sick-looking patient. Those are all pretty rare and have some clinical signs and symptoms. So I don't think you need to be routinely imaging for those. So then there's a real reason to image in any patient, and that's for alternative diagnoses. So if this is not a classic story for pyelonephritis, or they have right upper quadrant tenderness or findings on physical exam, you should do imaging not for pyelonephritis, but for the other things on your differential diagnosis. For the actual urologic conditions, I don't get imaging on day number one unless the patient has severe pain that would make me think of a kidney stone, in which case I would image them exactly like I would image any other kidney stone, or if they are extremely septic appearing, which again could be an infected kidney stone or could be the much more rare emphysematous pyelonephritis. If they don't have those findings, septic appearing or severe pain I don't get imaging on day number one, but I tell all my patients that with pyelonephritis, you really should be almost 100% better with two days of treatment. And if two days later, you're still febrile, you're still sick, you come back to the emergency department and that's probably a time when I'm going to start doing imaging. And of course, if in the meantime, they get sick, they become septic, come back earlier. So that's my approach to imaging. I agree. That's exactly my approach too. Dr. Morris, I understand that there was this study on this exact topic that showed some interesting results. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think if you look at a large cohort of patients who get imaging, those who have a normal or low pH, so less than 7, those who don't have any renal dysfunction, 
those who don't have a history of nephrolithiasis, if patients meet none of those criteria, then there's very little value in routine imaging. And you can feel fairly comfortable that initial approaches with antimicrobial therapy and other supportive care are adequate. Great. So we'll have that great list of indications for imaging for suspected pilo uh, in the show notes. Let's move on to antibiotic choices. Now, on EM cases, we usually avoid the topic of antibiotic choices because it's an international audience and there's so much variation in uh, resistance patterns. But I think that it's so important in this topic that we should try and highlight some key concepts. What are just some of the general considerations that we should be aware of when it comes to antibiotics for UTI, Dr. Morris? Well, I, I think... The first one would probably be that because lower urinary tract infections are a relatively benign condition, you probably want to minimize the degree of antimicrobial exposure, the breadth of spectrum of antibiotics that you use. So you want to choose as much as possible a relatively narrow spectrum antibiotic rather than an extremely broad spectrum one. And you also want to use relatively safe antibiotics. And I use the term relatively because all antibiotics have potential adverse effects. But as I'm sure many of your listeners know, both Health Canada here in Canada, but as well the uh, US FDA issued black box warnings around fluoroquinolones. And because of that, I think there's an added reason to be cautious about the use of fluoroquinolones when they're unnecessary. I guess I'll add in that the concept that there's at least a large percentage of patients with lower urinary tract infections who have treated symptomatically along with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories will do okay. Some of them might not, but the majority actually do okay. So I think all those things are part of the consideration and management of patients. In choosing antimicrobials, as you alluded to, I think the most important consideration is understanding the epidemiology of urinary pathogens in your neighborhood, your neck of the woods. And unfortunately, they're not as widely available or as well known as they should be. But certainly over the past few years, there's been a variety of different efforts to help clinicians understand what their local epidemiology is. Yeah, I, I want to emphasize something that Andrew said there, which is so important and often overlooked in the emergency department, is that our margin for benefit with antibiotics is significantly hindered by the fact that a lot of UTIs go away by themselves. Very frequently, lower urinary tract infections are self-resolving. So I'm aware of one study where they compared antibiotics to just ibuprofen. And in the ibuprofen group, 70% of women were symptom-free at three days. 70% of these infections self-resolved. In that study, I do think the antibiotic group was better. They had less symptoms and they resolved a little bit quicker. But if 70% of patients are going to get better with ibuprofen alone, your antibiotics can only ever help 30% of the patients. And that significantly limits your number needed to treat. Knowing that, the balance of potential harms from antibiotics becomes a much more important consideration. Absolutely. That really puts things into perspective. I guess the, the real question is which of those patients are at risk for getting really sick? And that's a tough answer. And it's very important. I'm not suggesting this treat 
UTIs with ibuprofen. What I think it really emphasizes is our decision-making strategies. And probably one of the big ones, and another mistake I see is you get that culture back two days later and the patient's on an antibiotic that is resistant to the antibiotic you were given, but you give them a call and they're symptom-free. How can that possibly happen? And I see people all the time chasing antibiotics. They're on another antibiotic, but they have no symptoms. If your symptoms have resolved, you no longer have a urinary tract infection, and it may just be because it's self-resolved. So the, the antibiotic does not need to perfectly match what the lab printout says in order for you to get better. Absolutely. Well, let's go back to this case here. This is a young woman with plain old cystitis. What treatment would you recommend, Dr. Morris? I think probably up front, if I'm going to offer her antimicrobial therapy, I'd probably go with nitrofurantone. It's relatively well tolerated, doesn't have systemic levels. So in general, I'm happy that I'm just focusing on the urinary tract. And the resistance rates remain extremely low for almost all urinary pathogens. All right. And nitrofurantone is great for cystitis, but not for upper tract, not for pyelo, correct? Absolutely. As I have tried to emphasize, pyelonephritis is a systemic infection, and therefore you need antibiotics that have systemic or blood levels and tissue levels of the antibiotic. Nitrofurantoin has levels that concentrate in the urine, but are not systemically sufficient to treat any infection. Okay, so that's nitrofurantoin. That's also one of my go-to, probably first line for just plain cystitis. There's also trimethoprim. There's one medication that I saw on the list of the latest guidelines that I don't see used too often. It's a one-time dose of phosphomycin, three grams, one-time dose. I kind of like the idea of a one-time dose. You don't have to worry about compliance. Dr. Morris, can you tell us a little bit about phosphomycin and whether we should be considering using it for patients with cystitis? I'm torn about phosphomycin and the reason I'm torn is because it's an excellent antimicrobial agent for all the reasons that you've explained. It has excellent levels in the urine. It is active against essentially all urinary pathogens that we see in 2017. But because of those features, that's why I don't want it used widely. And unfortunately, in the history of medicine, the easier it is to give an antimicrobial, the more likely clinicians are going to be to reach for it. And eventually, we won't have this very important weapon in our arsenal available to us when we really need it. So it has a lot of activity against fairly drug-resistant organisms. And I'd really, if possible, try and preserve it for those occasions and avoid using it in the average patient who we already have pretty good agents to use. Okay. So at least in Ontario, uh, your first line for cystitis is going to be uh, nitrofurantoin or uh, ceftra, trimethoprim, or cephalexin. In those patients who might have failed one of those, you'll hopefully have a cultural result. If you don't, phosphomycin might be an option there. And I'll emphasize there because you brought up culture results. There, there are really only two times that I use phosphomycin, and I think it's a great drug. And one is if you're allergic to everything else, but two is in ESBL producers. And we might talk about that later, but it in Canada, there is data showing that it is uh, more than 95% effective against ESBL-producing E. coli. The important thing, though, and the reason I brought it up right now is you said, oh, you'll have the sensitivity results. And unfortunately, the sensitivity results on the culture only show you what the lab tested for. 
and labs don't test for phospholysin. So sometimes you need to think outside the box and not just read the sheet in front of you. If you have a bacteria that looks like it's pan-resistant, that doesn't mean it's resistant to all antibiotics. It just means it's resistant to the antibiotics on that page. And that's one of those times to think outside the box, think about phospholysin, or maybe call your friendly neighborhood infectious disease doctor. All righty. So really two indications for phospholysin in cystitis. One is if they failed other therapy. The other one would be if their sensitivities come back and they're resistant to a whole slew of other things. That's certainly a possibility there. Absolutely. And one other thing that I'd mention, and you alluded to this a little bit, you know, our understanding and certainly resistance patterns, I can speak with the most confidence in Ontario, but I think it's true for many jurisdictions, even internationally, is that the activity of fluoroquinolones for urinary pathogens has diminished over time, primarily because of overuse. And yet agents like cephalexin have retained a fair amount of activity against the most important pathogen, which is E. coli. So just like with community-acquired pneumonia, where the most important bacterial pathogen is streptococcus pneumoniae or pneumococcus, with urinary tract infections, especially cystitis or lower urinary tract infections, the most important, perhaps the only agent you really routinely need to be able to treat is E. coli. And that's the only one we really care about And so when we're looking at activity, what we really care about is activity against E. coli. We're not worried about organisms like Pseudomonas, which are rare pathogens in this population. Now, I've seen practices all over the map in terms of duration of antibiotic use for UTIs. Dr. Morris, how long should we be having these patients on if we're giving them nitrofurantoin or for cephalexin, for example? How long should the patient be on antibiotics for? So we're somewhat limited by the studies on duration. I think for sure, over time, we've learned that shorter courses for most infectious diseases are comparable to longer courses. And for cystitis, almost always three days is sufficient. There are a few exceptions. So nitrofurantoin, we probably need five days, but even then we might get away with three days. And When you look at the literature and you look at all the studies, as you treat for a shorter duration, it appears, at least initially, that the relapse rate is higher with the shorter durations. When you look at this, and there have been uh, systematic reviews that have done so that show that shorter durations in urinary tract infections are largely equivalent to the longer durations. And the other thing I would point out is that a rule of thumb that many people have held is that fluoroquinolones are superior because of their urinary tract availability and penetration. And you could treat, you can use those to treat for a shorter duration. But when you look at the literature systematically, you find that those shorter durations are probably equally sufficient with non-quinolone treatments as well. So for lower urinary tract infections or cystitis, In most situations, especially other than phosphomycin, three days is usually sufficient. Wow. I mean, that's a game changer. I think if if everyone uh, in the province or in the country uh, or across the uh, emergency medicine community was giving three days of nitrofurantoin or cephalexin for cystitis, there'd be a lot of money saved, a lot of happier patients. 
I all too often see patients on fluoroquinolones for just what appears like cystitis, a lower urinary tract infection. Is there any indication for fluoroquinolones in a plain old cystitis? I think if you asked me that question a few years ago, the answer would be different for the general medical community answering it than it is today. And I think because of a heightened awareness and concern about the safety of fluoroquinolones compared to the relative benefit, as well as rising resistance rates to fluoroquinolones, it's very difficult to argue for the routine use of fluoroquinolones for cystitis. All right. Well, that segues nicely into sicker patients with upper tract UTIs, pyelonephritis. Let's say this patient is a bit sicker. They come in with fever. They've got some back pain. They feel unwell. How would that change your antibiotic decision-making? I think it changes my decision-making in a few ways. One is if they're hemodynamically unstable, then I need to give them parenteral therapy rather than oral therapy just to at least be certain that I'm getting the drug into them and it's being delivered to where they need it, meaning the blood and the kidneys. In terms of choice of antibiotic, once again, I'm really being guided by my local antibiograms and I'm choosing an agent that has a high reliability of treating E. coli if it's a young patient. And to be honest, most of the other organisms I'm not too worried about in the young patient who's otherwise healthy who comes in with pylo. So in Toronto, where I practice, by and large, I'll use a third-generation cephalosporin if I'm going to give it intravenously and if I'm going to get away with something orally, which on rare occasions might occur, then I would use a comparable agent, which would probably be something like amoxicillin clavulanic acid, which has a similar spectrum of activity. All right. So for the not-so-sick pylo patient, you might choose oral antibiotics like clavulin. For the sicker patient, especially someone who's hemodynamically unstable, you're going for intravenous antibiotics and you'll choose a third-generation cephalosporin as your first line. I think it's really important to point out the different spectrums of patients that Andrew sees and that I see. And so obviously in the inpatient setting, Andrew is primarily using intravenous uh, medications. But actually we know in the emergency department that a lot of pyelonephritis is treated as an outpatient. Not all pyelonephritis need the hospital and therefore we can't use an IV. That's sort of one of the big uh, determining factors of being able to go home is being able to take things orally. I always struggle a little bit with this. So looking at the guidelines and traditionally I've always used a fluoroquinolone in this setting because I've been told about things about bioavailability. It's definitely still list- listed there. I wonder, and maybe Dr. Morris can fill us in a little bit on what the best oral agents to use. Cause that's going to be a very common question in the emergency department. I want to touch on a few things. One is that ciprofloxacin in particular has bioavailability around 70 to 80%. It doesn't approach that of the other primarily respiratory fluoroquinolones like levofloxacin and moxifloxacin, which are greater than 90% and approach 100%. And it's one of the reasons why the regular oral dosing of ciprofloxacin is 500 milligrams and the intravenous dosing is 400 milligrams because it accounts for the difference in bioavailability. We can get adequate levels But it's not because it's so perfectly absorbed. It's because we can tolerate higher oral levels. One of the advantages 
based on the best evidence that we have from randomized controlled trials is that we know for sure that for most patients, especially otherwise healthy women who come in with pyelonephritis, we can use seven days of fluoroquinolone therapy, and that's equivalent to two weeks of other antimicrobial therapy, especially with beta-lactams. We don't have as much confidence, and I've already pointed out that there probably is some degree of confidence that we could use a shorter duration or seven days with the beta-lactam therapy, but we don't have those really strong, well-done randomized trials as we do with the fluoroquinolones. So it's really a toss-up when you get to it. If you have epidemiology in your region where you can use a beta-lactam, and if we're talking oral, it'd be something like amoxicillin clavulanic acid or cephalexin, both have very good activity for most E. coli's. Whether you use those for 14 days, you might even want to hedge and go a little bit lower and maybe something like 10 or 11 days, something like that, versus the seven days of fluoroquinolones. I think it's a pick and I'd be comfortable with either decision-making. And I'd, like, I'd love to throw in one pearl that I picked up when reading through the IDSA guidelines. And I think the most important thing, and the reason we're always so hesitant to talk about antibiotics here, is that no matter where you work, the answer is going to be a little bit different. It's hard to get a perfect answer because resistance patterns change around the world. So it's all going to come back to knowing your local antibiogram. But how do you interpret that result? Once you find it, which is always a problem in the first place, but once you find it, how do you know how to interpret the results of that sheet? And what the IDSA recommends is for simple lower urinary tract infection, because we're not as concerned, pick an antibiotic that is listed there as it being at least 80% effective in your region. But for pyelonephritis, because the patients are sicker, they have a higher threshold. So you want to pick something off that antibiogram that has more than a 90% chance of working in your community. Uh, so it's a nice little pearl in terms of interpreting the antibiogram. Got it. What about the practice of giving one dose of IV antibiotics in the emergency department and then sending the patient home on oral antibiotics? You know, for that patient who you think has pylo, but they're not that sick and you just kind of want to get the antibiotics in them quickly, that seems to be the thinking, but you think they're okay to be discharged on oral antibiotics. What do you think of that practice, Dr. Morgenstern? Just don't, please. No, don't. It's that easy. Don't. And why do I say that? I, I say quickly and emphatically, sounds a bit like a joke, but it's actually been, been studied. There's been a number of studies that look at patients who are discharged home on oral antibiotics and if you were given an IV dose in the emergency department, you don't have higher cure rates, but what you do have a higher rate of is complications. So you double the rate of antibiotic-associated diarrhea by being given a single dose of IV antibiotics in the department as, as compared to not being given the dose at all. So I don't think that there's any role for being given a single dose of IV antibiotics if the patient is well enough to be going home. If you're really concerned about them, all departments stock the same antibiotics orally. So you can give them a dose if you're worried about them not get, being able to get to a pharmacy for 12 hours, but just give it to them orally. Great pearl. Let's just step this up a little bit. So we've talked about cystitis. We've talked about the not-so-sick pylo. We've talked about the sicker pylo. What about the patient who you suspect has pylo, who's crashing septic shock? Dr. Morris, what are your antibiotic choices there? Well, as I often tell people, the patient in septic shock is no time for antimicrobial minimalism. And what you want to do is make sure that you are giving them a reasonable treatment that will cover the most likely pathogens based on your local epidemiology. I'd say for most jurisdictions in North America, 
That includes ampicillin and a aminoglycoside. And if you can't use ampicillin, then it would probably be vancomycin and aminoglycoside. And the reason why I'm saying that is because for many of these patients, they're often older. They have a reasonably high likelihood of having enterococcus as a pathogen, and you want to be able to cover enterococcus. And my agent of first choice for most enterococci is ampicillin. There is some degree of ampicillin-resistant enterococci, and I want to cover E. coli and other gram-negatives. And still in 2017, pretty well most reliable set of agents for most community-acquired gram-negatives are aminoglycosides. There are always caveats. You're always going to have some patients based on their medical history who may have a likelihood of having an organism that might be resistant to ampicillin, might be resistant to an aminoglycoside, but those are relatively few and far between. And because those aren't routine, in those situations, I think you need to enlist expert opinion to help you out. But for everyone else, probably Ampingent is reasonable. And the absolute hardest time to find the right antibiotic, to find an antibiogram, is when you have a very sick septic shock patient at four in the morning. So this isn't something you should be inventing on the fly. These are things that should be in protocols. You should have a discussion on a Tuesday morning over coffee in your hospital and get some advice so you have septic shock guidelines. You just want to make sure that you're not overexpanding and using these those same antibiotics for everybody. They should be applied for sick, severe septic patients. So we had talked about asymptomatic bacteriuria in pregnant patients, but let's say we suspect the patient actually has a urinary tract infection, they're pregnant. What are your antimicrobial choices for that situation? So I find it very hard to give answers to questions like that because like a lot of things in uh, medicine, evidence-based fails if there's no evidence and we don't like to study things in pregnant patients. So the only real answer that you can give is out of the antibiotics that you know work, look at their ratings and find the one that is best known to be safe in pregnancy or has been around the longest. And that is probably the most accurate answer I can give you. So I tend to start with cephalexin in pregnancy because in my jurisdiction, I know it works relatively well against E. coli and it has a good safety profile in pregnancy, but we don't have any better evidence than that. So you just have to sort of go by what you think is safe in pregnancy. All right. So cephalexin, if for some reason they can't have cephalexin, amoxicillin is another choice. What about nitrofurantoin? My understanding is that it depends on the trimester that they're in. Dr. Morris? So two points. One is I'm reluctant to use amoxicillin in 2017. I think our resistance rates for E. coli in particular are pretty high in almost every jurisdiction we look at, somewhere between 50 to 60% susceptibilities at best. For nitrofurantoin, I think that it's a reasonably safe agent, uh, especially in the second trimester we try and avoid nitrofurantoin, like we do many agents that we don't have tremendous confidence about. Third, we're fine with. All right. So cephalexin is probably your best bet in terms of patients with cystitis who are pregnant. If for some reason they can't have cephalexin, you should look it up. Maybe ask your infectious disease specialist on call. Just remember that nitrofurantoin is generally only recommended in the third trimester. Now, 
Now, every now and again, I see otherwise healthy women with recurrent UTIs coming into the ED for big gun IV antibiotics like mirapenem because they grew ESBL in their urine that's resistant to everything else. How do you manage these patients with recurrent UTIs who have been resistant to a whole bunch of antibiotics? I think it's a really complex situation. First of all, many of these patients don't have recurrent urinary tract infections. They have recurrent bacteriuria. And they've had a belief system that's been consistently reinforced by recurrent treatments. And they may or may not be getting better. Often they do feel some symptomatic benefit, whether that's a placebo effect or not. I think it varies on a case-by-case basis. But it requires a lot of patience, and it's usually not something that can be solved in one day, certainly not in an emergency department visit on how to address these rather complex problems. If somebody's having so many recurrent urinary tract infections that they're requiring agents like meropenem, then I think that's a situation that requires sober office-based visit where there's more time, less harried, less emotions being involved, and you can objectively look at all the evidence and try and separate the hard evidence that we have on the patient's illness compared to some of the things that we may or may not know. And some of these things may also be relayed to the emergency physician who doesn't even have access to all the necessary information. There may be cultures that aren't available to them. They may not know the prior treatments that were provided. And it does happen, but it's very rare that patients need urgent meropenem or other broad-spectrum antibiotics for usually lower urinary tract symptoms. And I know we've already said it, but let's emphasize it again. The sensitivity sheet in front of you doesn't cover all antibiotics. So this is a great time to try that fosfomycin like we were talking about before. And because a lot of lower urinary tract infections resolve on their own, there's a lot of options. So even in Canada, Clavulin is only 70 to 80% effective against ESBL E. coli. 70 to 80% effective might be enough for somebody who has a relatively benign condition. Uh, so it's worth having a conversation with the patient and thinking outside of the box or outside of that sheet that's in front of you. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about prevention of recurrent UTIs. So let's say you're ready to discharge this patient and they ask you about prevention of future UTIs. Dr. Morris, We've all heard about cranberry juice preventing UTIs. There's things like voiding after intercourse to prevent UTIs. What's the evidence for these kinds of things? What can or cannot help prevent UTIs? I wish we had better evidence to guide us on what would prevent it, but we don't. I think what we've learned over time is that many of the studies and or anecdotes around cranberry juice, cranberry capsules, were all heavily biased, actually influenced by companies that produced cranberry juice. And I think the, the evidence-based medicine in 2017 is it provides no benefit whatsoever. And I think we've got pretty good evidence to support that now. In terms of voiding after intercourse, in theory, it makes sense. The benefit or the evidence supporting that practice is limited. So I think I, I remain agnostic in 2017, whether it's actually beneficial. All right. So that's prevention of UTIs. And that's what you might want to tell the patient when you're sending them home. What about pain management? You know, some patients with UTIs will suffer with terrible dysuria. While it's not available in Canada, phenazopyridine, the brand name is Peridium, is used as a urinary anesthetic. 
Dr. Morgenstern, is there any evidence for these kinds of urinary anesthetics? So what's your suggestion in terms of helping patient with pain? So they are widely used and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. People were very upset when they were removed from the market in Canada. But if you actually go back and look at the evidence, the best thing I could say about it is that it's pretty weak. There, there may be some small benefit in terms of pain and I don't like pain. So having a discussion with your patients is pretty reasonable. I think the most important thing is to remember the reason they were taken off the market are the side effects. So these can't be used in patients with G6PD because they will cause uh, hemolysis and they also are a known cause of methemoglobinemia. So maybe if you want some excitement in your emergency department, these are, are good agents. But for the most part, when you start talking about things that bring me into the toxicologic section of my textbook, I get a little bit nervous prescribing them. So Dr. Morris, any other words of wisdom you have for us? Anything about the future of UTIs and emergency medicine? Well, first of all, it was great being here and I really enjoyed the discussion. I think Anyone who's interested in the wise use of antibiotics knows that probably the Achilles heel is asymptomatic bacteriuria. And I think Justin, probably more than myself here, has really outlined the importance of focusing on the history and physical and your clinical diagnosis rather than the microbiologic diagnosis. So I think if we continue focusing on that, we've got some uh, hope for the future. All right, time for the big review. Ready? First, the history for UTI. What do we need to know? Well, when a woman comes in saying they have a UTI with the same symptoms as a previous UTI, they're correct about 90% of the time. About half of patients who present with dysuria and frequency have a UTI, but the real slam dunk is the combination of dysuria frequency and no vaginal discharge or irritation. That is a positive likelihood ratio of almost 25. So that's lower UTI. What about upper UTI? Ask about symptoms of pyelonephritis, back pain, fever, nausea, vomiting, and don't forget high-risk patient factors, stuff like immunocompromised state, multiple antibiotic-resistant UTIs in the past, and any anatomical abnormalities in the GU tract. So that's the history. What about the question of which patients with lower UTI symptoms require a workup for STIs? Well, there's two approaches to screening for STIs in the ED. One is to screen all sexually active women less than 25 years old as per CDC guidelines with vaginal or cervical swabs, with the thinking here being that asymptomatic pelvic inflammatory disease can lead to chronic complications. The second approach to screening for STIs in the ED is selectively screening only patients at high risk for STI who have symptoms consistent with an STI. And this is a strategy that we recommend. And one nice practice pearl that can save us time in the busy ED is that a patient-performed self-vaginal swab is more accurate than a physician-performed vaginal swab for gonorrhea and chlamydia. So that's the review on history and screening for STI. What about indications for imaging in patients suspected of pylo? So don't routinely tick off the CT or ultrasound box for all patients suspected of pylo. Imaging is really only indicated in three groups of patients. First, the sick, sick patient who you think might have a perinephric abscess, a septic stone, or emphysematous pyelonephritis, or in septic shock. 
Second, in terms of who needs imaging, the patient who hasn't responded to treatment after 48 to 72 hours, and you think they have pilo, they probably need some imaging. And the third group of patients you should think about doing imaging on is the patient who you're unsure of the diagnosis, who you think has a good chance of having an alternative diagnosis. Now, there is another approach to deciding who needs imaging for UTI, and that comes from a study that showed that as long as patients don't have renal dysfunction, a history of kidney stones, or a pH of less than 7, they don't need imaging. Okay, so we've covered history, STI screening, and who needs imaging. What do we need to know about antibiotics in UTI? Well, there's a few general principles that we need to remind ourselves of before we pull out that script pad. Choose a narrow-spectrum antibiotic when possible. You don't need big guns for most patients. Choose the antibiotic with the safest side effects profile. I've seen enough cases of Steven Johnson and anaphylaxis from sulfonamides like Septra or Bactrim that I tend to avoid those if possible. But that's just me based on anecdotal evidence. And you might want to keep this fact I'm about to tell you about when it comes to antibiotics and UTI in the back of your mind because it's kind of mind-blowing. The majority of women with lower UTIs, actually 73% in one study, will be symptom-free within three days with ibuprofen alone. Next, when it comes to antibiotic considerations, always take into account local resistance patterns. And when you're interpreting your local biogram, the IDSA guidelines recommend that for lower UTI, Choose an antibiotic that's estimated to be at least 80% effective in your region. And for upper UTI, choose an antibiotic that's estimated to be at least 90% effective. Now, when choosing an antibiotic, the choice should reflect its ability to eradicate E. coli, by far the most common bacteria, which is found in 70 to 95% of lower UTIs, rather than more rare bacteria like Pseudomonas, which is found predominantly in upper UTIs and immunocompromised patients or those with genitourinary anatomical abnormalities. Besides the increasing resistance to fluoroquinolones like Cipro, this is another reason to avoid fluoroquinolones in patients with lower UTI when possible. And what about duration of therapy for lower UTIs? Well, three to five days duration of therapy is sufficient for the vast majority of patients. Please don't be giving a week or two supply of antibiotics for a straightforward lower UTI. Now, one antibiotic that I didn't know much about for UTI is phosphomycin. Phosphomycin is on the list for the first-line medication along with nitrofurantoin, but Dr. Morris recommends its use for two indications only. One, in patients who have failed other therapy, and two, those patients who are resistant to a whole slew of other antibiotics. Remember that phosphomycin might not be listed on the sheet of susceptible antibiotics, but it's a pretty useful drug because the one-time dose of 3 grams is equivalent to 7 days of nitrofurantoin or 3 days of septra or Bactrim. And it's also effective against ESBL and VRE. So that's phosphomycin. What about the pregnant patient with a UTI? Well, in pregnant patients, the first line for lower UTI is cephalexin. Remember that nitrofurantoin should only be used for pregnant patients in the third trimester. We'll have some handy tables in the show notes for antibiotic choices and doses for you to review. And when you're discharging a patient from the ED, they sometimes ask about preventing UTIs and urinary anesthetics. Well, when it comes to preventing UTIs, 
they're a bit out of luck because things like increased water intake, the direction of wiping after a bowel movement, cranberry juice, and voiding post-intercourse have not been supported by evidence. And urinary anesthetics like phenazopyridine, peridium, was taken off the market in Canada. And even if you do have it in your formulary, I wouldn't recommend it because the evidence is really weak and you definitely don't want your G6PD patient with UTI to come back to the ED with methemoglobinemia after you've given them phenazopyridine. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Please, if you have any feedback about any EM Cases resource, the main episodes, the Best Case Ever podcast, the Journal Jam podcast, the Crit Cases Transport Medicine blog, the Waiting to Be Seen blog, the written summaries, the Just the Nuggets emails, the rapid reviews, the ebooks, the EM Cases course, any of those things, please email me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. I'd love to hear your constructive feedback to make EM Cases even better for you. And if you have any ideas for future episode topics, please do let us know. And to wrap it up, this month's quote of the month is from the great William Osler. The good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. So until next time, take it easy. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.